Well, my friends, happy Mother's Day. It is one of those days, Mother's Day is not only a time for us to celebrate you mothers, which of course it is, but it's also an opportunity for us to remember that God actually commands in scripture for you to be honored every single day. And so mothers, words cannot express how thankful we are for you. Thank you for how you delight in your children. Mothers, thank you for how you teach your children wisdom for the path of life, and thank you for how you gently pull us back onto the path as we inevitably stray a bit. And so mothers, words, again, can never do justice to how thankful to God we are for you. Thank you. And we will most certainly pray for you today because uh, your work is no easy privilege. Now, Mother's Day is also an opportunity for us to remember the truth of Psalm 68.6, which says that the Lord puts the lonely into families. You see, for some of us, Mother's Day comes with a twinge of pain for a whole host of different reasons. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus makes us family with God as our father. And that means in Christ we have new daughters and new sons and new mothers. And so today is the day that mothers, we celebrate you and celebrate the gospel all together. And so with that said, mothers, I would love the privilege of praying for you before we jump into God's word together. Father, we give you thanks and praise for our mothers and every mother in this room. Father, we praise you because our mothers delight in us, their patient instruction to us and their gentle correction of us. They all picture the way you parent us. And so you are so good to give us mothers to show us what you're like. And Father, today I pray Isaiah chapter 40 over all of our mothers, that each of them today would wait upon you and that you would renew their strength. They, they would run the race of motherhood and not grow weary because you are the God sustaining them, the unwearied one. And Father, I pray that all of us today as we open your word, would have our hearts and minds set upon Jesus and all that he is and has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in honor of Mother's Day, I'd like you to take a moment. I want you to try to remember something. I want you to try to remember your mother or maybe your father's most repeated phrases when you were a child. What were those things? Just think about it for a moment, that like your parents almost on instinct just said on repeat. Or maybe if you've been a parent for a while, what are those phrases that you kind of find yourself saying again and again? You may not be surprised to learn that my parents are something of the hippie type. And so growing up in Southern California, my parents took us on frequent road trips in their VW bus 
Uh, my, my brother, who's actually here today, would always repeat the same complaint to my mother on these trips. Mom, Matt's breathing my air again. Okay, this is just on repeat. My mother's most frequently repeated phrase on these trips were, kids, if you don't look at the trees, we will get out for you to marvel at them. If you don't look at the trees, we're going to get out for you to marvel at them. This is my, my mom was into trees, so this is what you do. I asked my wife, actually, you know, what, what were your parents' repeated phrases? Now, my father-in-law is a man of very few words. She's like, yeah, my, my dad's grand verbal contribution to my early childhood was the phrase, straighten up and fly right. You guys ever hear this? This is a Western Pennsylvania phrase. Straighten up and fly right. Now, no matter what your parents' repeated phrases were, one of the things they teach us is that we repeat what's important to us. We repeat what's important to us. My mom values trees a ton. And so on repeat, look at the trees or we'll get out so you can marvel at them. And in a somewhat similar way, the Apostle Paul writes the letter of Philippians like a parent. You see, he was a single man with no children, but the Philippians were his spiritual kids. And what he repeats to them is what's most important to this spiritual father. And in his letter to the Philippians, Paul repeats nothing more than the command to rejoice. To rejoice. In just four short chapters, the apostle Paul either says he's rejoicing as an example for the Philippians to follow or commands them to rejoice over a dozen times. The thing that the Apostle Paul valued, that he repeated, his sort of straighten up and fly right was rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord is actually the big idea and the banner that flies over our entire passage this morning. Just listen to the way the Apostle Paul begins Philippians chapter 3 with the big idea, rejoice in the Lord. He puts it this way. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. By the way, you know that Paul's a preacher because he uses the word finally and there's still two chapters left. Okay. So he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. See, the Apostle Paul is commanding them to rejoice, but it's a specific kind of rejoicing. He's not saying rejoice because all your circumstances are wonderful. They're happy, clappy. Just put a smile on. No, he's not saying that. He's saying rejoice in the Lord. This is a rejoicing, not because of our circumstances, but really despite them. This is a rejoicing because, as Paul Tripp says, even if you're going through the storm, if you're united to the Lord, then he will use your storms to show you his glory. You see, we rejoice in the Lord because in the Lord, we have the promise that he's actually working every circumstance, both the best and the worst, for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. 
So you can rejoice. You actually have every reason to rejoice always if you're in the Lord because he's in the boat with you. And he's the one who will use even the storms of life to show you his glory and his wonder. And what's interesting is the Apostle Paul says that rejoicing in the Lord, you notice, is safe. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He's saying, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're facing today or in this season of life, here's the safest thing you can do that I don't mind repeating. Rejoice in the Lord. What are you facing? He says, the safest thing you can do right now is rejoice because no matter what you're facing, the Lord is at work for your good and his glory. Now, if you've tried to rejoice in the Lord for more than like five minutes, you know it's just not that simple. You know that rejoicing in the Lord isn't like just this one-time event. Like, I rejoice in the Lord, and that is the state I will be in for the rest of my life. Just doesn't work that way. Rejoicing in the Lord is not an event. It's actually a path that you walk a whole life long. Rejoicing in the Lord is a path that we walk a whole life long. And throughout Philippians 3, verses 2 to 16, what the Apostle Paul does is he shows us sort of three keys to walking the path of joy with the Lord. So he says, if you want to walk the path of joy in the Lord, you first have to count your gain as loss. Second, you have to count Christ as ultimately valuable. And then finally, you have to count the resurrection your goal. So let's begin with the first one. Paul says, if you want to walk the path of rejoicing in the Lord, you have to first count your gain as loss. Let's look together at verses 2 to 7. Paul says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who, who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. To walk the path of rejoicing in the Lord requires first that we count our gain as loss. Paul opens this passage in a pretty strange way. Notice what he does? He starts with a command, rejoice in the Lord, and then the very next command is actually the same command three times. Look out, look out, look out. So he says, rejoice in the Lord, and if you're gonna do that, look out for anyone who teaches you that circumcision or really any other religious 
or non-religious accomplishment is the ground for a right standing before God. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And if you want to do that, you need to watch out for anyone who says you need Jesus plus anything in order to have a right standing before God. Because Jesus plus anything for a right standing before God is an anti-gospel. It's heresy. It's saying, yes, I know Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected on my, my behalf. That's excellent. But I need that plus I need to get circumcised. Plus I need to have a great career. Plus, I need to get married. Plus, my kids have to look a particular way or act a particular way. And Paul is saying, if you add Jesus to anything, you lose the gospel. He says, look out. If you want to rejoice in the Lord, look out for anyone who says, you need Jesus plus something in order to be justified and have a right standing before God. He says, if you want to rejoice in the Lord, you have to count anything that you might look to that might give you confidence before God as loss. Anything that you might look to and say, because I have that or am that or do that, I'll be okay. God will approve of me. I have right standing before him. Paul says, anything that you would look at in that way, count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Because you cannot have confidence in anything you do and what Christ has done in order to have a right standing before God. You can't have them both. Because you simply cannot have two two greatest hopes in life and in death. You can only have one. And so Paul says, if you want to rejoice in the Lord, count as loss anything you would be tempted to count as gain. So let's make this personal for a moment. Just right where you are, even if you're like, dude, I'm not into this whole religion thing. It's Mother's Day. I just came here to make her happy. You know, that's fine. No problem. You're here. Might as well not waste the time. Let's make it personal in the sense of try not to nudge your husband or wife on this one. Just think about for you. What are you tempted to put your confidence in that isn't Christ? What are you tempted to look at and say, because I am this, do this, or have this, I'm one of the good people. I have a decent standing before God. I'm justified. What is it that you're tempted to look at? Maybe it's your morality. I'm not like those secular godless people. God must approve of me. I'm not like those religious hypocrites. God must approve of me. I'm not one of those people with bad theology. I have good theology. I've read the books. I know what I'm doing. I have a good career. I pay my taxes. God approves me. I'm one of the good people. I'm part of this political party and not that political party. I act this way in my marriage. I have these kind of devotional patterns. What do you look at and say, because I'm that, I know I'm someone. I know God probably approves of me. 
You see, functionally, this is, we're all tempted in this way, even if we'd never say it. We're all tempted to look at something and say, because of that, I have a right standing before God. I'll give you an example. I was asking myself, you know, I was actually praying this morning, like, Lord, what is this for me? Where am I tempted? It was just so obvious immediately. It's my performance as a husband. And the way I know that that's the place I look for for confidence before God is that when I perceive that I've been a good husband for a week, I'm like, dude, I'm just, I'm rocking it. Things are going well. I feel so much better about me and my standing before God. But when I perceive that I've been a really crappy husband for a week, it's like, I can't approach him. Well, what am I saying? Jesus is not good enough and what he's done is not sufficient enough to reconcile me to God. I need to add to it my record as a good husband. And we can do that with nearly anything. What is it for you? You may be wondering at this point, what does all this have to do with rejoicing? What's this have to do with rejoicing? You see, if you are looking to anything but Christ as your confidence before God, then you'll never be able to rejoice in God. You'll never be able to rejoice in God. You'll never be able to be confident in God. You'll never be able to worship and enjoy and rest in God because you'll always be wondering, have I done enough to procure his favor? Have I done enough to really be someone? Paul says, if you want to rejoice in the Lord, you have to count everything that you might look to for confidence before God to make you special. To God, cause God to approve of you. You gotta look at that as loss because you can't have both yourself and what you do and Jesus and what he's done as your ultimate confidence. But why? Why would you choose to count your gain as loss if your gain is good things. Nothing wrong with being a Hebrew of Hebrews. Well, that brings us to the second way that we walk the path of joy in the Lord, which is that we, cry, we count Christ as ultimately valuable. You see, Paul counts anything he might do to achieve a right standing before God or others as loss because he counts Christ as infinitely more valuable than anything he can do. Listen to how Paul writes about himself in verses eight to 11. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Why does Paul count his gain, his pedigree, his resume as loss? Because you can't have your resume and Jesus' resume 
as your ultimate hope. And he says, Jesus is infinitely better. How's he better? What do you gain when you choose Christ as gain and all your gain as loss? Well, the greatest thing you get according to Paul is that you get Christ. You get Christ himself. Notice he says that he counts everything as loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says the best thing is that I get Jesus instead of my gain. Instead of looking to what I've done for my ultimate confidence, I get Jesus himself and I get to know him. And it's mind-boggling to know Christ. Like, I told you guys last week that I recently got to meet one of my heroes named Paul Tripp. It was a really cool experience. I got to hear him speak, and then I went and met him after he spoke, and I actually got to talk to him for a minute. And it, it was really cool. Like, the man's got a near-mythical mustache, and as he was, like, speaking to me, I was almost, like, mesmerized. It was, just, it was wonderful. And frankly, I would be totally lying to you if I said, I know Paul Tripp. I don't know Paul Tripp. He was just nice enough to talk to me for 30 seconds. But what is so extraordinary is that by grace, we get to know the one through whom Paul Tripp and that mustache were made. We get to know. I mean, just think about this for a moment. We get to know and call my Lord the one through whom the entire cosmos came into existence. The one who right now upholds the universe by the word of his power. The one who is giving you the very breath you have right now. The one who created protons and electrons and Andromeda galaxies and sound and color with a word. We get to know him. Who's Paul Tripp? You get to know Christ, the one who reigns over the whole of the universe and yet took on flesh, dwelt among us, and took our sin upon himself on the cross. You get to know him. And Paul's saying, why would you prefer something other than him for your only hope in life and in death? Were you going to look to a career to make you someone when you could have Christ? And then Paul goes on and he says that when we're united with Christ by faith, we also get just a myriad of beautiful benefits. It's sort of like when I got married to Andrea. I know we like to joke about this, but I genuinely married up. Okay, like my wife is extraordinary and I am very normal. Okay, and when I got married, it was just amazing. Like, all that she is became mine. I got to have her and all these incredible benefits. Like she's the most loyal person I've ever met. The most capable person I ever met. Constantly selfless. Constantly giving. And I got united to that. All those benefits through being married to Andrew become mine. I mean, it's, like, it's amazing. And that now I look at my kids and I see them and I'm like, this is great. They're getting like her looks and her intelligence and her disposition and like my last name, and that's good enough. You know, like, this is awesome. And Paul's saying, when you're united to Jesus by faith, all that is his becomes yours. Notice how Paul talks about the law here. You see, the law is good. God's law is good, but when not obeyed perfectly, we come under the curse of the law. It's the curse of death that's over all of us. What we've all earned through our good works is a curse. 
But Jesus took on flesh and was born as one under the law and obeyed it perfectly in perfect righteousness. And when he went to the cross, this great exchange happened. He took our curse and we get his righteousness imputed to us. It's the most beautiful transaction you could ever imagine through being united to Jesus. He becomes what we are. He takes our sin. And we become what he is, the righteousness of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Paul just holds this out and he says, what in the world are you going to choose? You really want to look to your career, your body image, your religious or non-religious good works as your confidence before God? Or would you rather have Christ? You want to bear the exhausting yoke of trying to establish your own righteousness before God? Or would you rather receive the gentle and light yoke of Jesus? You know, my wife and I are just like knee deep in the, uh, in the diaper phase of life. Some of you have been in this phase before or you've taken care of little kids. But the diaper phase is a, it's a phase unto itself. It's, uh, it's an interesting one especially when you live in Philadelphia, where most of the year you cannot open your windows because it's too cold. So the diaper phase of life can become a bit rough for the way people experience your home. And Andrew and I are just right in the midst of this. And you guys know, like when you just, there are some diapers that are so bad that you cannot even deal with them like normal diapers. You can't even go to the diaper pail. Okay, these are the ones where you must take that diaper and run outside to the trash can as fast as possible because the diaper pail with its little smelling agents just won't even do it. And the original Greek language here in Philippians, what Paul is basically saying is, when I look at anything I am, have done, or possess... I look at it and I count it as one of those horrendous diapers. In the original Greek, it's actually even more stark than that, but I'll spare you. It says, I count any gain of my own as a diaper compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, diaper, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. To walk the path of rejoicing in the Lord, we count our gain as loss and Christ as ultimately valuable. And when Christ is your ultimate value, when Christ is your ultimate value in life, well, then your life has a new goal. If we're going to walk the path of joy in the Lord, finally, thirdly, we count the resurrection as our goal. Because when Christ is your ultimate value, the resurrection becomes your ultimate goal. Listen to how Paul describes it in the end of our chapter, or our passage, excuse me. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection 
and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. When Christ is your ultimate value on the path of rejoicing in the Lord, then the resurrection becomes your ultimate goal. Because in the resurrection, you will know Christ, your ultimate value, in ways just not possible in this body and life. In this body and life, we behold the hope of Christ by faith. But at the resurrection, we'll behold it by sight. How amazing it'll be when he dwells with us and we're his people and he wipes away every tear from our eye, makes every sad thing untrue, and we are with him forever. Paul says, I count the resurrection where I will see Christ face to face as my ultimate goal. Now, please understand, and I hope it's clear from what we've seen already in this passage, that Paul is not talking about earning his way to heaven. Notice the language he uses. This is pressing on to make the resurrection our own because Christ has already made us his own. This is a straining toward the goal of resurrection that Christ has already promised to give us by grace. See, we have to understand the beautiful paradox in the Christian life that straining and grace fit together perfectly. Straining and grace fit together perfectly. We reach because he holds us. So the question is, how do we strain toward the goal of the resurrection? I think the answer is in verse 10, where Paul tells us that we strain toward the resurrection by knowing Christ more deeply in the sufferings of life so that we can experience his resurrecting power. We strain toward resurrection by not just short-circuiting our suffering, but actually pressing in to know his power, his sufficiency, so that we can say with the Apostle Paul, I actually glory all the more in my weakness because when I'm weak, he's strong. I'll boast all the more in my weakness because it displays the strength of Christ. We strain toward the resurrection by getting to know Christ more through our seasons of suffering. I'll give you an example for how this works. Um, one of the great privileges of being a pastor at City Light is that I get to pastor a church with a ton of single folks in it, which I think is really neat. And many of you are single. You're adults that are unmarried. And though the Bible says that singleness is a gift... You don't have to be gifted to be single. That's a total misinterpretation of 1 Corinthians. Singleness and marriage are gifts in their own way. And I know that for some of you, you actually experience, though, singleness as a form of suffering. 
you know the very unique trials and temptations and challenges of singleness. And there is always the temptation in that trial to short-circuit what God is doing. To say, singleness is actually a trial I cannot endure. And so what do you do? You start you know, dating people that don't love Jesus, that you know, man, it would not be good to be married to this person, but you know, what could be worse than singleness? So here I go. Or you just start fornicating with each other because it's like, how could I bear the reality of the trial of singleness? But we actually strain toward the resurrection when instead of looking for short fixes that always overpromise and underdeliver, we actually seek to know the sufficiency of Jesus in the midst of our loneliness. When we seek to experience the power of Jesus in the face of our temptations. When we seek to have our hearts in love with Jesus in a way that is not possible when our interests are divided, which is how the Apostle Paul describes marriage. And this, of course, isn't unique to singleness. Everyone who has been married for more than a few days has experienced a challenging season in marriage. And we are almost always tempted to short-circuit that. Let's just get divorced. Or I'm going to fantasize about what it would be like to be married to someone else or another version of you. But we strain toward the resurrection by instead of fantasizing or fighting with each other, we press into the sufficiency of Jesus to comfort us in our disappointment, to empower us to love someone who we consider in the moment unlovely to seek the good of someone else as he has to us. See, when you press into Christ in the midst of your suffering, you experience his resurrecting power. And so that's how we count the resurrection as our goal. And so my friends, as we come to the end of this passage, I just want to encourage you that the Lord who means to reign over you actually commands you to rejoice in him. He does not want to level upon you burdens in this fallen world. Instead, he says, why don't you lay down the burden of trying to establish your own righteousness through your own resume and take on the easy and light yoke of my righteousness my resume. Why don't you lay down that exhausting temptation to establish your own righteousness and take the easy and light yoke of Jesus. He is meek and lowly in heart and he will give you rest. Will you come to him and count him as your only hope in life and in death instead of anything you can do? It's the most free and joyous way to live. And with that invitation, I want to invite you now into the time of our service that we respond to what we've heard from God's word. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to respond by coming to the communion tables, front or back, anytime during the next three songs. 
At the communion table, we remember the body of Jesus that was broken for us by tearing off a piece of bread. We remember the blood of Jesus shed for us by dipping into the cup and eating. And so I want to invite you to remember today that Jesus, through his broken body and his shed blood, has done all the work to make you righteous through faith. And so you can boast in him and not in you. I want to also invite you, this can be a time in response to pray. You can sit where you are to pray. You can kneel. You can go to the back. There'll be folks in the back. They would love to pray with you. Maybe there are areas of your life where you're like, I just, I can't rejoice in this area because I'm looking to it to establish my own righteousness. Ask others to pray for you. Pray right where you are. We'll also sing because singing is what we do in response to one who would take our sin and give us his righteousness. Songs make sense. And I also want to invite you, if you're here today and perhaps you've never come to the point where you said, I will count my gain as loss for the sake of gaining Christ. I want to invite you to come and put your trust in Jesus today. Maybe you're here today, you've been religious your whole life. You've been around church your whole life. Maybe you were even baptized. Maybe you've even taken communion before, but you know that deep down, your only hope in life and in death up to this point has been you. Your performance, what you've done. I want to invite you today to become a follower of Jesus. To say to him, what you have done in the Living, dying, and being resurrected is actually my only hope in life and death. Would you forgive me and lead me? Maybe you're here today and you're actually totally irreligious. You're like, dude, I, this whole religion thing freaks me out. I'm, you, you seem nice but kind of crazy. No, I don't know about all this. Right, thanks for the nice part. But you're looking to what you have done to make yourself someone. The problem is that God sees through all of the games we play and sees that we have fallen short, not just of his law, but even our own. And we're under the curse of the law. And I want to invite you to Jesus Christ who will remove the eternal curse that we deserve and forgive you and make you righteous in him. So if that's you this morning, you can pray where you are, you can come to the back, or you can just write about it on your Connect card, put it in the orange box, and I'll email you tomorrow, and we can talk about it a little bit more. I'll pray. Let's respond to the one who is of infinite and surpassing worth. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would make this passage true of us. Would you even now be miraculously making us the kind of people who say, I count all things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing you, Christ Jesus, my Lord. Lord, would you make that miracle true of every single one of us? In your name we pray. Amen.